right, come on now. Who's excited to be in the house of the Lord? Hey, make some noise. Excited to be here. Man, it is so good to see you guys. We want to welcome everybody to our Ashland campus as well. Everybody watching online, we are one church in two locations. So what God's doing in Boyd County is just amazing. And before we go any further, can we get for everyone that's got baptized? Let's go. Let's celebrate that. Woo! Man. That's what I'm talking about. That's why we exist, to help people follow Jesus so they can experience a better life. And I'm telling you what, we have so many great things stored for this spring. If you don't have our church app, I wanna encourage you, download that app, it's free. Put your notification on because when we have events like baptism, we got all kinds of great things coming up, which marriage now, we got a blood drive coming up this month as well. It just helps you be in the know. So we're gonna jump into a new series today, but before we do, I just have a few questions for you. Has there ever been a time in your life that you felt like God was just distant from you? That God was just silent? That, that maybe you've been seeking him, maybe you haven't sought him, but he is just silent in your life. You can't hear him, you can't feel him, you don't know if he's near, you can't see him, you can't see he's working in your life. Maybe that's in your marriage, in your relationships, in your job, in your career, in your parenting. You're like, God, where are you? You know, help me in parenting. Where are you in my life right now or school? And maybe you're there right now this moment. Maybe that's the situation that you're in. But if you've been there before, weeks later, months later, years even potentially later, you begin to look back and you look and you say, now I see what God was up to. Now I know why I had to go through that. Now I know why I moved to that city. Now I know why I went to that region. Now I know why I went to that college. Now I know why I'm part of that family. It's only down the road do you really begin to see what God was up to. So maybe you've been there, or maybe you're over here going, man, I just don't see God. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't know the circumstance or the situation. And if that is you, I'm telling you what, this series is for you. And I wanna encourage you not to miss this series. You may be traveling, you may be gone, go home, do something. But listen, you wanna get online, be part of the series because this story, this book that we're gonna cram into three weeks is just an amazing story. I'm so thankful that God put this book in the Bible. In fact, it's a Cinderella story. We all like Cinderella stories, right? Especially around March Madness. You have that team that's ranked like 32 and they make it like to the final four and everybody's cheering for the Cinderella team because we like a Cinderella story. We like the story when someone was first that went last, you know, or, or last and then to become first or went from rags to riches. We like that Cinderella story. Well, this book is a Cinderella story. And it is the book of Esther in the Old Testament. This book has so many surprises around every single corner. I mean, if you like love stories, man, this book's for you. If you like reading that stuff. If you like like suspense, there's assassination plot and there's all this plot that thickens. If that is you, you're gonna love this story. If you like World War Z, like fight to the death and let's go, or Braveheart, like there's gonna two people fight, let the best man win, man, you're gonna love this story. If you like something that's scandalous, I'm like, you like, like the 411, like you like the scandal stuff, this book is scandalous. Like, if you watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, don't have to raise your hand because you probably don't wanna admit that, but anyway, if you do like that stuff, right? Like, okay, I kinda seem I like that stuff. Like, I kinda like The Bachelor or The Bachelor. If you like that stuff, I'm telling you, you're gonna love this book because there's so much stuff packed. There's so many reversals. There's so many shockers. There's so many when you read through the text, you're like, oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. One, one thing that's really unique about this book, the book of Esther, is that nowhere in the book is God mentioned. 
In fact, when the scholars were putting this to the canon, when they came together, they followed the 66 books because the Bible is really a library of books. And they come to the book of Esther. They went to the book of Esther and they searched it in Hebrew and all the way through it. And there's not one mention of God. Not one mention of Yahweh, the temple, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the prophets. There's not one mention of God. And so they said, maybe we shouldn't include this in the Bible. Maybe we shouldn't put this in the canon, all because it didn't have the name of God in it. But I'm telling you, God is all over it, even when you can't find him. Have you ever thought about that, your own self? Have you ever asked the question, God, why? Why am I here? Like, why am I in Moorhead? Man, I could be at Destin at the beach. Can I get a witness? Come on now. Like, why did you put me here? Like, why did you bring me to this school? Why did you move my job here? Why was my grandparents born here and they kept their family raised here and now I'm raised here stuck in Moorhead or stuck in Asher or whatever city you're from? Why am I here? Why am I in this region? Why am I in this skin color? Why am I in this generation? You can't pick the generation that you're born into. You know that, right? Like, I was born in the 70s. Nobody remembers the 70s. Everybody was high. You know what I'm saying? Like, nobody remembers the 70s. And then the 80s came. Some of y'all lived through it like big hair don't care. Like the bigger the hair, the sexier you were, right? If your veins could touch the roof when you got in the car, you're hot, you're all that. Come on, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. Like you weren't born in that generation, right? So you don't get to pick the generation that you're born into. God in his sovereignty says, I want you to be born into this generation, into this skin color, into this nationality, into this time, into this family. You can't even pick your family. Some of you wish you could do that over. You can't even do that. So if you ask your question, why, why me, why now, why here? Why did you bring me to this place? I'd even go a step further and say, why did God bring you here even this morning? Because nothing within you wants to seek after the things of God unless the Holy Spirit's drawing them. Nothing within you wants to say, let's get up and let's go worship with a bunch of people unless God is doing something in your heart and drawing you. So let's, let's jump into, before we jump into the book of Esther, if you have your Bibles, you could to the, turn to the book of Esther. If you have your Bible app, I'll be using the New Living Translation. But let me define a couple of things real quick when it comes to the theology of this, of this sovereignty of God. There's a couple of things. One is the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. Paul writes in Ephesians that he makes everything work according to his plan. Paul writes in Romans, it says, how impossible it is for us to understand the decisions and the ways of God, because God is sovereign, which means this, he is in control of all things. God is in complete control of every single thing that you're worried about, everything in your life, God is in complete control. But under the sovereignty of God is the providential will of God. And the providence of God is how he controls everything behind the scenes. How he's in the situation with his invisible hand, pulling strings here, making things happen here, raising up people here, tearing kingdoms down here, where God begins behind the scenes to shape things. And here's what I learned about God. He's patient. So if it takes God 100 years, 200 years, 300 years to get this in order, to get this in place, for this to happen at this time, to get everything to fulfill his perfect sovereign will, he will. I like to say it like this, the sovereignty of God is what is going to happen. And I'm here to tell you what, if God put it in motion, there is nothing can stop it. No devil, no hell, no nothing can stop. If God has set it in motion, it will come to pass. That's the sovereignty of God. But then there's the providence of God and that is how he makes it happen. How he allows things and causes things to allow things to work out for his purpose and plan. And here's what, this is what's so mind-boggling to all scholars and theologians and people today. This is really when it comes down to it, is that every single person on the planet has a free will. God didn't make you to be a robot. You have a choice. 
You had a choice to come here today. You have a choice to worship. And just the moment, if you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, you will have a choice to choose him to be the king and the Lord of your life. And when you look at this, people have so, struggled so much with their life. How in the world can man have free will but God be in control? How is that? How could that even happen? Because here's what I've seen through the scripture. Here's what I've seen in my own life. And here's just what you have to know theologically in your place. God will take your sinful decision, your sinful choices, your bad choices, your good choices, your successful choices. And at the end of the day, when you get to the end of your life, God would say, that's exactly how I wanted it. And as Paul said, no one can understand the mind of Christ and the depths of Christ. How is that possible that you have a choice, but God's plan will prevail? That has mind-boggled people over and over and over. But we have to receive the truth when we look at the scripture that God is in complete control. Nothing happens without his sovereign will being done. But also, he gives every one of you a free will choice to choose. There's consequences to our choices, but God can use those choices, watch this, for his good and for his glory. And it's usually weeks, months, years, decades later, we look back and say, what the enemy meant for evil, God used it for good. And that may take decades, or it may not even be in your lifetime, because God is, not, God is patient. He is slow to carry out his will. I love what Proverbs 16, 9 says, that we can make our own plans, but it's the Lord that determines our steps. And that has become so true in my life. I made plans after plans after plans, and God's like, nope, this is the next step. But God, I want to, nope, 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 go back out, nope, this is the step. That is so, so true. And so before we jump into this, we're gonna go, there's a bunch of chapters here, we're gonna go to the first two. We're gonna survey. This is really setting up where we're heading for these next couple of weeks. The background is with Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe in the Old Testament you've heard of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was told to go back and rebuild the temple, but Nehemiah was told to go back and rebuild the wall. Between Ezra chapter six and Ezra chapter seven, between those two chapters, the whole book of Esther takes place. That's why you can't read one without the other. You need to go through Ezra and as you go through the book of Esther. And so what took place here is that God wanted the Jews to go back home. In fact, that's one of the signs of the end times is that when the Jews begin to come back to Israel. And today, right now today, there are more Jews going back to their homeland than ever in the history of mankind. It's that, and that is a sign that Jesus is not, that Jesus will come back. He's gonna come back, y'all. All right, three people, y'all believe that. Y'all see, he's gonna come back. He will come back. And so you remember the story, right? I talked about this around Christmas time. King Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem, takes Israelites, takes Daniel to Babylon. The Babylonians worship King Nebuchadnezzar, and then the Persians come and they take Babylon and they take them back to Persia. So now the Jews made it to Persia, which is modern day Iran. So this story is a bunch of Jews living in Iran. Can you imagine that today? Folks, this has been happening for thousands of years. Thousands of years have these battles back and forth. So now we pick up with that story, modern day Iran right here in Persia with chapter one, verse one. If you're ready to get started, so let's go. All right, I got 18 minutes. Y'all better pray for your boy. All right, here we go. Verse one. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 providence stretching from India to Ethiopia. Now, let's stop right there. Your translation may say Asuras, or Asuras is what it sounds like when you say it. Asuras is just the name for a king. It's just the, the, the title they give them. But his name is Xerxes. So King Xerxes is this playboy who loves to party, who loves to get drunk, and who loves to show off his wealth. 
so much that he's over 127 providences. This is so massive. I want you to picture this, how big this is. 44% of the world's population is under his rule, 44%. His landmass stretch, watch this, twice the size of the United States. Imagine taking the United States on the map, put it right beside each other. That's how big the landmass he has. This guy was the king of kings. He had a major rule going on. And then verse 3 comes. And verse 3 says he threw a party that lasted six months. Anybody went to a party that lasted six months? Come on now, that's a party right there. Like these guys partied like it was 1999. They know how to throw a party. And he brought all these people in. Why? Because he wanted to fund his war. Look at my gold. Look at my statues. Look at my palace. And for six months, all you can eat, all you can drink, buffet to show off his splendor and his wealth. Well, after the party was over, six months of partying, guess what he did? He threw another party, right? You know, like you go to the party, then you go to the after party, but this party is going to last just for a week. And we see in verse five, it says that he threw a party that lasted for seven days, but they moved out of the palace and they went into the garden. He says, eat, drink, do whatever you want, drink as much as you want, because listen, we, we're gonna party like you don't wanna party. Like, it's just amazing. This guy was a drunkard. He's a playboy. He's just male chauvinist. He really just abused women, used women. He was this guy, and he didn't care to show off how strong and, 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 and his might. And verse eight, look what it says. By the king edict, it said, no limits were placed on the drinking. Why? This is an open bar party. No tipping. Keep your debit card. Like, this is it. There's like no limit drinks. It's just unlimited. For the, con for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. However, there was also a ladies' party taking place. The ladies didn't go outside. The ladies stayed in the palace. You see this in verse 9. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the men outside getting drunk like it's going on and partying and drinking, talking about all the stocks and everything taking place. And all of a sudden, Queen Vashti's and all the ladies in the palace, well, I don't know what they're doing because I don't know what ladies do. Like when y'all get together, we, no, we, we haven't figured that out. So y'all in here partying, y'all doing your thing, palace, all the girls in here, all the gods over here, life's good. But what happens is on the seventh day, verse 10 tells us, the last day of the party, the king is tipsy, aka he's wasted. Like he's had way too much to drink. And he's displayed everything he's owned to show his power, his might, his status, his kingship, except one thing, his wife because his wife was smoking hot. She was, the Bible said, gorgeous, beautiful. And so here's the king, he's tipsy, he's wasted. He said, you know what, I've showed you all my splendor, all my glory, I showed you all my gold. You drunk out of gold drink cups. I mean, it's just amazing. Listen, thank you, we're gonna take over Greece, we're gonna fund this war, we're gonna win this war. There's one thing else I wanna show you guys. He goes to his eunuchs and he says, I want you to bring my wife in here with her crown on and I wanna display my wife in front of all my drunk buddies. And look what happens in verse 12. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti to come before him wearing the crown, she refused to come and this made the king furious and he burned with anger. Now, why would the king be mad? First, he's wasted, so he's kind of really not know what's going on, but why would he be mad? See, when we read this, we said that he told his wife to come in wearing the crown and that's it. And then she was furious. But the context, and most scholars would agree that the request he made was is for Queen Vashti to come in in the nude with no clothes on, only wearing a crown so he can display his beautiful bride who he just uses to make him look good. He can use his wife to show all the drunk men, look at my honey. And the queen said no. Because if all of a sudden say, hey, the king needs you, put your crown on, he wants you to come, she would have went. But he wants you to come with no clothes on and show all his friends, his drunk bunnies, buddies, how fine you are. 
And she said no. And she knew the consequences that are gonna take place when she rejects the king's order. Well, this made the king mad. He would, listen, you can't make this stuff. I'm so glad this stuff's in the Bible. And like, you can't, listen, he made them so mad that he called the wise men and got all the Persian lawyers together and say, I'm so mad at my wife. What can be done to her? Is there any law that I can use against my wife for disobeying the king's order? You know why? Because the king was embarrassed, he was furious, and the boy had no riz, had no riz whatsoever. If you don't know what riz is, ask a middle schooler, they'll tell you. He had no riz whatsoever. And so one of his eunuchs named Mimuckin, I like it's like to say Mimuggin here, like this, but it's Mimuckin, he comes up to this, he's so hurt, he's so, listen, he's so, he's so scared of his wife. Ladies, I'm so sorry that you gotta read this in here, but this is, it's kind of funny in a way because this guy's petrified of what the, if women would rise up, what would take place, but I'm so thankful that God puts stuff like this in the Bible, so because God, invisible hand, uses all this stuff for his good and his glory. Look what happens in verse 16. It says, Mimuckin answered the king and his nobles. And I can hear the panic and the, and the intensity in his voice. It said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere, pandemonium's gonna take place. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Yeah, they were left out naked, only wearing a crown in front of a drunk buddy. See, they didn't put that in there. But before this day is out, the wives all over the place the wives everywhere, king, the wives everywhere. Listen, I can feel it in him. If not, anyway, just go with me. That's how I feel it. It says, listen, the kings everywhere, the king's noble throughout Persia, the wives will hear what the queen did and they will start treating their husbands the same way, which means when their husbands tell them to get here naked, they're gonna like, uh-huh, if the queen can do it, yeah, I'm not gonna do it. And all the lady said, Three of you. All right, that's good, that's all right. Like, can I say amen in church to that? I don't know if I can or not. Yes, you can, we're glad you're here. Now watch this, there'll be no end to their contempt and to their anger. This guy right here, he goes, listen, she's gonna ruin every husband. Like all the wives are gonna rise up and go against their husband. Like we gotta fix this, we gotta fix this now. Because if we don't, they're gonna have pandemonium. So verse 19 says, well what are we gonna do? How are we gonna fix this? And so one of the guys says, let's write a law, because a law cannot be revoked, Let's write a law that says that Queen Vashti is never allowed in the presence of the king again. And let's send it out to all 127 providences. And let's try to beat the narrative. Here's what you know about ladies. They will find out that Queen Vashti did this, that she stood up against the king. They think they can nip it in the bud, right? They think they can fix it really quick. So let's just hurry and send out 127 providences. Watch this, two land sides of the United States. Let's send letters on horses and camels to all the men living in place, so all the wives will know that we have now abandoned Queen Vashti to come into the king present, and the king is going to look for someone more worthier than she is. And what's, what's so sad about this, verse 21, because he's drunk, he's wasted, verse 21 says he signs the law. And he puts in the law, banishes Queen Vashti because she stood up for herself and do the right thing, and everyone in the land knows now the king is a bachelor on the prowl, looking. And then we get to chapter two. Now, when we read our Bibles a lot of time, and this is, this is more of a kind of like a Bible story as we're going through this, as we read our Bibles all the time, we often miss the time frames. You see, between chapter one and chapter two, four years have passed. We know that because in chapter one, it says it was the third year of his reign. In chapter two, it says it's the seventh year of his reign. So four years have passed before the drunken party, the edict against Queen Vesting, he went to war to Greece, debate whether he won that or not because he's trying to avenge his dad, Darius I, who went 
and got beat by Greece, and he's trying to go back in his dad's footsteps because he inherited this kingdom of 127 providences. He's the king of the largest landmass at this time with 44% of the world's population. He is the king. All that has passed, and then all of a sudden it says in verse one, he comes home, he's defeated, he's lonely, he's tired, and he realizes what Queen Vashti did to him. And now he realizes he's lonely. You see, he has hundreds of concubines. He can sleep with whoever he wants, when he wants, how he wants, when he wants to do it. However, but he's missing this part of his life. He goes, I don't know what to do about this. I, I, I think it's, it's t I gotta find the queen. And so one of the eunuchs beside him says, let's have the bachelor contest. Let's throw a bachelor contest. Here's how we're gonna do this. I've got it all planned out. And he says, what do you have? And look what he says in verse two. His personal attendants suggested, let us search the empire to find a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents to each providence, remember there's 127 of them, to bring all these beautiful young women to the royal harem, the fortress of Susa, which is the capital of Persia. Let the king units charge, be in charge of the harem, and he will see that all of them are given beauty treatments, spas, nails done, hair did, all that stuff, that's what's gonna take place. Verse four, after that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vesti. And this advice was so appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Now, what do you think about this? I don't want you to go ask the young virgin girls. I want you to go get the young virgin girls. So he goes and he finds all these young, beautiful, young virgin women, bring them to the palace, pamper them, get them ready, watch this, for a one-night stand with the king. And whoever has the best one-night stand with the king becomes the queen. So now you know, come on, your ladies here. You have two options here. You're either gonna be a queen or are you gonna be the king's concubine for the rest of your life? And you had no choice. What do you do? You're gonna fight to be the queen because you don't wanna be a concubine for the rest of your life. Now, I want you to think about this. There's an alcoholic, playboy, male chauvinist, prideful, drunken king who's got a marital issue, who writes silly laws, now goes into a bachelor contest to find him a honey. Where's God at in this picture? God is allowing all this to happen. Like all this immoral stuff, like where, God, where are you at in this picture? Where are you, when are you gonna come through? Where's your invisible hand? Because God, I don't see you moving and working in this story. And then we get to verse five. Verse five says there's a guy that entered the scene named Mordecai. Now Mordecai was captured from the Babylonians and brought to Babylonia. And from there, the Persians captured them and brought, watch this, Mordecai to Persia, modern-day Iran. Not only is he a Jew, he's working for the pagan king as the gatekeeper, the private gatekeeper. He's working the gates for the king. He's also named after a Babylonian god, not a Jewish god. Let me, not, not one of the, the, the faithful Jewish names. He's named after a Babylonian god. And now he here is working for the king, and the only thing that really Jewishness about him we know is he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and a little bit about his ancestors. But here's the question, why is he still there? Because an edict went out and said all the Jews are more welcome to go back to their home and worship their God at their temple and their land. Go back to your land, but he stayed. See, sometimes we get so comfortable where we are. We get so familiar with where we are in Babylon or Persia or Egypt and we get all numb to the sin stuff around us 
that we don't even focus on our one true God. So here's Mordecai, a Jew working for the king, living in Persia in the capital in Susa. But then we get to verse seven, and here's where Esther's introduced to our story. Verse seven said, this man had a very beautiful, lung, a very beautiful, lovely young cousin named Hadash, who's also called Esther. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. His cousin now becomes his stepdaughter, basically adopts her as his daughter to take care of her. What do we know about Esther? She's an orphan. She lost both her parents. She was adopted. Her Hebrew name was changed to a Eastern goddess name after the goddess Estar. Her name is now Esther. So she's named after a pagan goddess. She's young, she's beautiful, she's a virgin because she's never been with a man. And because of that, against her will, she was taken to the king's palace and to the harem, waiting for a one-night stand with the king. Oh, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is like a movie I've removed. This is in unbelievable. And she would go and she would receive beauty treatments, being pampered, spas and everything, to get her ready for her one-night stand. But look what happened in verse 10. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality. She didn't want anyone in Persia, modern-day Iran, to know she's a Jew. And from her background, because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. So now here she goes to the harem. Mordecai, he walks by the harem trying to find any information he can about Esther, because he raised her. 12 months have passed. Watch this. It took them one year to get her ready for one night with the king. Six months, the Bible says, of beauty, beautifying her. Six months of a diet. Six months getting her ready, her figure, her skin, her everything ready, her hair, so that when she walked into the king's chamber for her one night stand, she would have pleased the king. And then in verse 14, it says she was taken to the private room next morning to the second harem. What's the second harem? Here's the second harem. It's for all the women who's no longer virgins because they slept with the king. And you go in this chamber and you sit here and you wait till every single woman went through to see if you're gonna be picked by the bachelor. Oh, by the way, if you don't get picked, you're gonna remain in this harem for the rest of your life as one of the king's concubines. Oh, and just don't forget, since it's a contest, you need to sign the fine line here that if you get pregnant accidentally by the king, your son's or daughter has no heir to the throne. Could you sign right here, please? Welcome to the contest. And you did not have a choice. You can't make this stuff up. Like, and it's right here, and you're like, where's God? Here's Esther, a Jewish girl, gonna have sex before she gets married. She knows that's wrong. Here she is, has a chance to marry a pagan king. She knows that's wrong. Here she is hiding her Jewishness. Whether she's embarrassed, whether she's scared, we don't know, but she's hiding it because she doesn't want them to know. And so my question is, where is God? Because if not, we would sit back and say, why is God allowing this to happen? Just like the question we all, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? My question is, why is God allowing anything good to happen in the world we live in? 
But this is where we get to, why me, God? Why me? Why is, why is this happening to me? Why my family? Why my marriage? Why my work? Why my health? Why me? God, what are you up to? Where are you at? God, I can't hear you. I can't see you. I can't feel you. I don't even know what you're doing. And with all these sinful decisions taking place, and here's what we know. God will allow things to happen that he completely disagrees with to carry out his greater purpose because he's given us free will to make choices. And then look what happens in verse 17. And the, end, and the king loved Esther more than any other young woman. He also delighted with her that he set, her royal, her, he set the royal crown on her head and declared her the queen instead of Queen Vashti. Esther won. She won. And I wonder why Esther. Now, come on, this side of history, we got our Bible in our hand, we got the book. Oh, because God, God wanted that to happen. So easy. The king didn't know that. Esther didn't know that. Let's go back and put ourselves in that circumstance situation. Why was Esther picked? And listen, there's only one place, there's only one thing, reason I can find if you're looking through it from not a God lens, but just from a humanistic lens. What would allow the king to pick her? We see in verse 15, something very unique that says, it says, Esther didn't ask for nothing else except what they suggested. So what that it says is like when all the women came in, they had their one night with the king, then the king says, whatever you want, I will give you. You gave me your purity, now I'll give you whatever you want. And whatever they wanted, they got. Queen Esther didn't ask for anything. And I just wonder if the king said, she ain't a gold digger. She don't want this stuff. All these other girls are fighting to be the queen because they know if they're not, they're gonna be a concubine. She didn't, she didn't ask for anything else except what's the basic stuff that was suggested. And I believe it was that that God used her contentness, not wanting anything else from the king, that the king goes, that's who I want. I want that girl. Because she didn't request nothing else when all these other women did. That's why I believe that he picked her. We know that God's hand's behind it. We see it on this side of the cross. But then verse 20, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. Didn't want nobody to know she's a Jew. She was still following Mordecai's direction just as she did when she lived in his home. And then we pick up in verse 21. We're almost finished. Listen, you don't wanna miss the rest of this story, man. This is, this, this is just setting the stage. Some time has passed. She's now the new queen. She's living in the palace. She went this little Jewish girl who was an orphan, adopted, named after an Eastern goddess, as now the queen of 127 providence. Unbelievable. Talk about a Cinderella story for this Jewish little girl. And then in verse 21, it says, And one day Mordecai, remember this was her cousin who raised her, was on duty at the king's gate. And two of the king's eunuchs, oh, this is so good. Look at this. Look at these names. Look at this. Big Thana and T-Rex. Like, these guys are gangsters, man. Like, this is Big Thana and T-Rex. You know, you can't make that up. Like, I'm going to change my Fortnite name to Big Thana. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is so good. Like, listen, like, Big Thana and T-Rex, man. They had this plot. Look what happens. Who were guards at the doors of the king's private quarters. So they knew where the king coming out. And they got mad at King Xerxes. So they said, let's plot a time to assassinate him. So Big Thana and T-Rex said, we're going to assassinate the king. But verse 22, but Mordecai heard about the plot and he gave the information to Queen Esther. 
And she told the king about it, and, he gave, and she gave credit to Mordecai. Verse 23. And when the investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found out to be true, the two men were empowered on a sharp pole. They were killed, executed. And this is so good. Don't miss this. We're going to come right back to this. Not today, because it'll be way too long. But we're going to come right back to this. It says, this was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. This was recorded in the king's personal diary. This event right here where people say Mordecai saved the king's life. And I want to go a step further and say Mordecai did not save the king's life. God spared the king's life. Now, I want you to picture this. You've got this drunk playboy king who's male chauvinist, has disrespect for women, don't care about women. He's got all the wealth and stuff in the world, parades himself around his wealth, parades himself around his party, six-month party, seven-month party, writes edicts, these silly laws that his ex-wife now can't come into his presence. He throws his big bachelor things. I'm going to sleep with hundreds of women. Whoever has the best night, that's who I'm going to pick to be my bride who happened to watch this that long time ago, this guy named Mordecai, who was over here in Israel, now got brought to Babylon, now got brought to Persia, who's now on the king's payroll working at the king's gate, who just happened to be raised this Jewish little girl who is an orphan adopted named after some goddess in the eastern part of the world. And now he raises her up. Now she's raised up to be part of the king. And now she's the queen of all these providences. There's a plot to kill her husband. Mordecai, at this point, would have had no access to the king, but now pulls the queen to the side and says, oh, by the way, this is what's going to happen. You want to protect your husband. The king looks into it and it all pans out and they record it and it's going to, that's going to come back up. They record it in his personal diary that Mordecai saved the king. But I'm here to tell you that God will use your sinful choices and all your decisions that goes against everything that he says to fulfill his will. God is in control. And we could sit right now and we can worry about the world. What happens if China goes to Taiwan? What happens if Russia comes down? If Iran gets a new, if my, if who I vote for doesn't get in the White House, if they just don't fix that border, which he could by just one stroke of a pen, but I don't know why he don't do it. And we plan all this stuff as if we think that the next politician is the savior of the world. I'm here to tell you there's someone else bigger and greater behind our White House who has an invisible hand who orchestrates stuff just the way he wants it to do. So at the end of the time, it will be his will will be done. And you say, that's great and grand for Esther. That's great and grand for our country. But what about me? I have no idea why I'm in this place, in this town at this moment. You better buckle up, buttercup, because God does. And I promise you, it's not because of your job, it's not because of your degree, it's not because you're good at sports, it's not because your, your career was moved here for two years to the hospital, it's not because your great-great-granny makes good biscuits and has kept you here for the rest of your life. That is not. There is a purpose and a plan for God's will for your life or you would not be breathing. And what I hope and pray through this series is that you don't leave this time of your life and saying, I don't know why, and waste the time that you're here. There's a purpose for such a time as this. And when I love, when I love what Charles Spurgeon said, he said this, when you can't trace God's hand, because it's invisible, you can always trust his heart. 
And right now in your marriage or your finances or your addiction or your career or your, or your depression or your anxiety and you're sitting here and going, I don't know what in the world God's up to and I can't see his hand in my life. And why would God allow me to go to this? And what am I doing in this place? And why would you, God, bring me here? Listen to me. I just want to say this. You can trust his heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because his invisible plan and his invisible hand, watch this, is writing your story. Don't miss it. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. So with that, see what the king doesn't know is that next week, the devil shows up. And the devil's gonna do everything he can to stop God's plan that he initiated in the garden in Genesis chapter three when he says, I'm gonna send a seed that's gonna destroy that seed and he's going to strike your heel, but you're gonna bruise his head. The devil shows up trying to stop the will of God from being done and the pagan king has no idea he's part of the story. What is your story? Maybe you're doubting, questioning, and maybe you're waiting to see what God's gonna do. Listen, don't sit and wait. You can actively wait. Keep serving, keep praying, keep reading, keep giving, keep going, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep moving, even when you can't see. You know what that's called? Faith. Faith. And maybe that God has sparked something in your heart this morning for you to realize that you wouldn't even be in this place, right here in this building, right now at this time, if he wasn't drawing you to himself. And so if you're here just checking this God thing out and you've never put your faith and trust in him, listen, today you have an opportunity to say, Jesus, I've sinned against you I repent of my sin, and I'm gonna put my faith and trust in you. I don't know what your hand's doing in my life, but I trust you. Because the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. And that's what I long and want for you more than anything in my life, is for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And you can do that right now. And in just in a moment, your host or campus pastor, they're gonna come out and they're gonna share with you your next step. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that when they came to the book of Esther, they didn't throw it out. Thank you that they faithfully put it in there because even though you're not mentioned in the story, the story is all about your sovereign, providential, invisible hand. Because you are a covenant-keeping God to your people. And you're not gonna let the devil or a playboy drunken king stop what you've set in motion. And as we learn in the weeks to come, at such a time as this, we have an opportunity to stand and 
be what you've created us to be. And it's my prayer, whoever here this morning, God, who feels hopeless, who can't see, feel, hear, or see what you're doing, I pray that you would just surround them with your presence, that you would fill them with your presence, that your love would wrap around them and give them a glimpse, Lord, just give them a glimpse of hope. Let them know that you are writing their story. And God, when this is all said and done, we'll give you all the glory and all the praise for it's your name we ask and we pray. Come on now, and everybody say, amen, amen.